Hey there, history fans. Welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. And on today's episode, we are covering Genghis Khan, because you voted for him and that's who won. The great Khan himself. <laughs> uh, sorry, I can't not do that. <laughs> Well, just a little, here's a little uh, blurb for you. Don't forget to leave us a rate and review. <laughs> Please leave us a rate and review. Give us a comment. Let us know what you're thinking. It also helps people, other people find us as well. But also, if you want to give us your thoughts, we you can do it via our email or our social medias. Email history explains all at gmail.com not at all but history explains all at gmail.com and our social medias are facebook and instagram history explains it all underscore podcast both of them yep that's where you go that's where we also put up our today in history our archaeology in the news and we will be starting to put up or have started uh, don't we have to discuss the timeline more photographs that we each take of historical places we have visited would like to visit uh museums we've been to and seen historical pieces from which we both have a ton of so that that'll be upcoming as well stay tuned but shall we get into the great con on to the golden horde (laughs) all right all right, go ahead. So Genghis Khan was born in Mongolia near Lake Baikal, and his birth name was actually Temujin. Wasn't originally Genghis Khan. There's no known exact date of when he was born, but it, but it is believed that he was born between 1155 and 1167 to Yasugai, who was his father. It is said that Temujin was born holding onto a blood clot in his, in his hand. Can't remember if it's right or left, but my sources will say it. And this was supposedly something that told of a good or a great life. However, that's not how his life started. His young life was actually difficult as his father was killed by a nomadic group via poisoning. Melissa, didn't you put something up about poisoning on on a on a pod on an Instagram channel earlier? <laughs> oh yeah, the, the <laughs> cook that cook that was boiled alive for potentially poisoning a bishop. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh, and the nomadic group, the ta- Tatars, Tatars poisoned him, and this was around when Temujin was about ten years old. After his father's death, Temujin and his family were actually abandoned by their tribe. They had no desire to keep them around or feed them. And this included Temujin, his mom, and his six siblings. During this time, they lived in extreme poverty. But And, and his older brother, older half-brother, was the head of the family. The eldest was the head. But not long after they were expelled from the top, the tribe, Temujin ended up actually killing his older half-brother, and he became the head of the household. 
And at one point, he was even captured by the tribe that abandoned them. He was captured and escaped at some point. And what ended up happening was that before his before Yasuga's death, he betrothed Temujin with a woman named Borte. And even though the family had fallen on hard times, was in poverty at the time, they actually got married. And this is where I shall stop. Where do you even start with this? Okay. By the time that Temujin was in his early 30s, the area of Mongolia was split into several tribal lands. And this would include, and I'm going to butcher these names and I do apologize, the Naimans, the Merkits, the Tatars, the Kamag Mongols, and many, many more as well, too. And I'm going to refer to Khan as Temujin up until the time that he becomes Khan, just to differentiate between the timelines in his life. Now, these tribals, uh, tribal factions were frequently fighting with each other, often raiding each other's lands and property, exacting revenge on each other for various reasons, and plundering each other whenever possible. Temujin began his military career, if you will, as an ally for his father's blood brother named Tagrul. And when Temujin's life, uh, wife, his Borte, uh, was kidnapped by the rival clan, the Merkits, Temujin enlisted the help of his friend to help get her back. They hadn't actually been married yet. They were engaged to be married. They'd known each other since childhood. But now they're going to, I think they were, the, the plans were going to head. And then the rival clan kidnapped his soon-to-be wife. So Temujin was able to use the combined help of Togrul and his childhood friend, Jaluka, who was a Khan of the neighboring tribe of the Jaradaran. And eventually they were able to rescue her and uh, Temujin and Borta became a uh, husband and wife and had kids. We'll get into that later. Now, eventually Temujin and Jaluka actually drifted apart and each began consolidating their power within their own tribes and gaining land. Now, Temujin actually received a prophecy around this time from a local shaman stating that the eternal blue sky has set aside the world for Temujin. And when he was around 25, I'm sorry, go back to the earlier. So he was in his late teens, not 30s. Uh, but when he was 25, he was actually elected the ruler of the Mongols. Now, threatened by this, the following year, Jamuka actually attacked Temujin with about 30,000 soldiers. Now, unfortunately, Temujin was soundly beaten by his friend, his ex-friend, and their army. Now, not much is known about the following 10 years when he was essentially kind of in an exile. But at around 1197, Temujin and Tongrul banded together to help the Jin tribe gain control of the Tartars. And they had a major victory restoring the Jin to their former power. That was a dynasty and a portion of Asia. Now, both men were giving honorable titles as well for their help, but Temujin was giving a lesser title. And as he began to work on his military campaigns, he also began to break with traditional ways of rewards and spoils. Instead of rewarding men based on their family ties and their relation to Temujin, he would reward the men based on their merits and loyalty. 
he would also give civilians and soldiers spoils of the war too, which is not something he typically did. And instead of exiling rivals after a win, he began to integrate them into his clan and then give them their protection or give them his protection. My brain's all different ways today. And he was actually even known to adopt children from the conquered tribes into his own family. And as one can imagine, this made him very popular and also amassed a great amount of very loyal soldiers, which will play a key role later on. Now, eventually, because of his rising power, Temujin had a major rift with his father's friend, Togrul, that he'd known since he was a kid. And Togrul had a son who was actually very envious of Temujin, and he refused to allow his daughter to marry Temujin's son his firstborn. And this is actually a major insult in regards to Mongolian culture at the time and led the two tribes to a major war. Jamuka even joined in on the side of Togrul. So the two ex-friends are now banding together to fight Temujin, but both were defeated by Temujin. Not long after this defeat, Jamuka was actually given the title of Gur Khan, which meant universal ruler, and by another tribe, and this didn't sit too well with the other two men, of course. And they created coalitions of rival tribes to fight each other. Unfortunately for Jamuka, many of the generals abandoned him while he was fighting Temujin. And after just a handful of battles against Temujin's troops, Jamuka's own turned him over to Temujin. And via his incorporations of warring tribes and his defeat of Chem- uh, Jamuka and his tribes, Temujin in 1206 united much of the rival factions that had been warring since his birth. As there was now much peace, of course, the new consolidations of all the tribes became known as, as a whole, the Mongols. And soon after gathering, a gathering of the chief, soon a gathering of the chiefs of the tribes, they all elected Temujin as the Khan of the new formerly formed Mongols and named him Genghis Khan. Now, in terms of military campaigns, most of that actually happened after he became Khan. And this is more of him expanding the empire from what he had now united. Now, the first one was the Western Xi Dynasty, which was in northern China. And in 1205, the first campaign began on the western borders of the Mongol Empire. And that was run by the Tangut Western Xi Dynasty. To the east and south of that dynasty, though, was the superior Jin dynasty. The Jins were founded by the Manchurians, who had actually ruled as overlords of the Mongols for several centuries prior to that. Now, in 1206, Khan began his two-year-long campaign of control over Western Xia. By taking the lands of the dynasty, Khan was able to control all the roads uh, that they used for the Silk Roads, as well as gain very many wealthy vassals who would pay tribute to him. Now, once the Xi dynasty fell to the Khan, he began to set his sights on the even more wealthy Jin dynasty and the surrounding lands. The campaign began in earnest in around 1211, and fortunately for Khan, the Jin's had former military power in numbers, but one of their major field commanders, Wei Jin made several tactical mistakes against the Mongols, and he failed to attack them at the first opportunity, despite having far greater numbers. He just 
took shelter over at the Great Wall. And then during the Battle of Yuling, Jinjin's emissary, Ming An, defected to the Mongol side and then gave the Khan all of his intelligence that he had, which resulted in hundreds of thousands of Jin's being killed. And 1215, Khan was actually able to take control of Zhengdu, which is modern day Beijing, and captured this, after capturing the city, the emperor, Luangzong, fled and moved to the south, changing his capital and leaving the northern portion of his empire to the increasing Mongol empire. Now, by 1232, Emperor Zhuangzong's new capital now fell to the Khan, and his men and the Jin dynasty finally collapsed in around 1234. Now, during the fighting of the Jin was also the conquest of the Khanate of Karakitai. Now, by this time, the Mongols had been fighting in China for over 10 years and were becoming quite exhausted, if you think back to Alexander the Great and his conquering towards India. Instead of sending all of his army, though, to take control, Khan only sent 20,000 soldiers and some generals and a couple of, and, and, and his general, Jebe, who is also known as the Arrow. Now, because these troops were smaller than the whole of the Mongols, Jebe decided he was going to change his tactics en route to take over this particular faction and created a revolt from within the Karakitai that changed supporters of their ruler, Kuchlug. And this caused Kuchlug to flee, but he was soon captured by Jebe and then executed. And by 1218, this small faction of the army had been able to take over the entire Khanate, increasing their borders all the way over to the Caspian Sea and the Persian Gulf. Now, after this gain, Khan then set his sights on the nearby Khwarezmian Empire, which was a Muslim-led dynasty. And he thought it was advantageous to work out more of a trade agreement with them in order to gain a commercial partnership along the Silk Road. And at first it seemed to go well. Khan and his family and his generals invested a variety of items with the Muslim traders, obviously including things like gold, silver, fur pelts, silk, and much more. But unfortunately, the governor of the Otrar attacked this caravan, claiming it had spies and it was a conspiracy against the, uh, his empire. And to make matters worse, that governor then refused to pay back any damages or hand over the perpetrators to the Khan. So Khan then sent three men as ambassadors to negotiate with the Muslim Shah, two Mongols and one Muslim. The Shah is actually said to have shaved all three men and then beheaded the Muslim ambassador, sending his head back to the Khan. This, of course, infuriated Genghis Khan, and he amassed about 100,000 soldiers and headed straight for the empire himself to begin his largest invasion. And when they arrived, Khan and his men actually split into three groups. Fortunately for them and this invasion, the Shah's army was already split up via various feuds, and which left it kind of scattered throughout the empire. And this allowed Khan's men to very quickly defeat them and then overtake the town of Otrar. And it's actually said that the governor of the city was soon captured and then for his revenge, Khan ordered molten silver to be poured in the man's ears and eyes. He then continued on his invasion, conquering the city of Bukhara. And many of the citizens there were 
completely decimated and executed. Though also there were many that were conscripted into the Mongol army. And it said that Khan rounded up all of the elites of the city into one of the local mosques and gave them a speech on how they were all major sinners. Specific, supposedly saying, if you had not committed such great sins, God would not have sent a punishment like me upon you. Khan then quickly continued to the Samark land, which is nearby, where all the citizens were ordered to be killed, leaving no one alive. The Shah quickly fled, and the empire fell to the Mongols in about 1220. Now, between 1220 and 1240, Khan would go on to capture lands in what is now Georgia, Kievan Rus, Bulgaria, Crimea, and Persia. And this increased the entire Mongol empire to its biggest height, and word of the Mongols and the Khans soon began to spread throughout the rest of Europe as well, in medieval Europe. And although it didn't actually happen under Genghis Khan himself, the Mongols were even able to invade Japan, not necessarily conquer, conquer but invade Japan in Java in the early 1300s prior to the disassemble and fall of the Mongol Empire. Wow. Went in a totally different direction than I did with this section. <laughs> <laughs> you are going to hear some repeat from me because I'm going to be talking about the uniting of the empire. So when it came to war, Genghis Khan was known to be absolutely brilliant. And one of the things that he was able to do that many were not very great at was his ability to adapt and change to the circumstances that he was placed in. Originally, his men were just cavalry and therefore, they were really only able to defeat the nomadic tribes in the area. Cities and civilizations just weren't really feasible in the beginning. And he needed something else in order to conquer on a larger scale. In order to conquer or take over on that larger scale, Genghis Khan started using things such as catapults and ladders. And he even went so far as to change the course of direction for the rivers. <laughs> plowed and blocked off one course of direction for the river well i don't think that's nothing you usually hear yeah i know hmm. it's a cutoff of water supply cities were built next to rivers because it was a water supply for drink drink water but as well as water for your crops it kind of reminds me of that one battle i think it's alicia mm. where it's uh Caesar versus Vercingetorix and Caesar diverted the river around the city of Elysia. Yeah. I think we have an episode on that, don't we? Not anymore. Oh yeah, that's the one we took. Yeah, never mind. Yeah. Ignore me. <laughs> and in order to unite the nomadic tribes, Genghis Khan went about his unification in different format than I've ever read about. And instead of placing family members in high-ranking positions of his tribe, he placed allies that he knew what they were doing and he knew that they were loyal because family isn't always loyal. As I said before, he killed his older half-brother to become the head of the family. Well, in addition to that, he is probably also placing people who were adequate for the job. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Actual military people who knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And when he would actually conquer the other nomadic tribes he would incorporate the surviving members into his own tribe 
he didn't just go and wipe out the tribes. He took the members of them that survived and they became a part of his tribe. And these included people that were Christians, Muslims, and Buddhists, while Khan himself was so supposedly an animist. So he basically was like freedom of religion before freedom of religion was a concept. Not too, actually dissimilar to what Alexander the Great would do too. Yeah. And it's like, well, this is my land, but you're free to do what you want as long as you're loyal to me. Yeah, and pay tribute, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But these people were nomadic tribes originally. They moved around with Genghis Khan. They didn't sit and like settle a city and stay in one place like the people of Alexander the Great's empire. So he literally made it so that everyone was united on the same front. Religion, faith, doesn't it didn't matter. Man, woman, animal, didn't matter, actually. I'm going to get into that in just a little bit. Just to name a few of the tribes that he defeated, the Tartars. I keep saying Tartars like it's Tartar. <laughs> it's Tatars. I keep thinking you want to say Tauntauns, but okay. <laughs> no, it's Tatars. The, the, the Tatars were probably his most hated group since they're the ones that killed his father. You have the to- Togrel and Jamuka's tribes. Naaman Khan's tribe was defeated actually in 1206. And that's when Temujin became Genghis Khan. And after he physically united the tribes, he began to set rules or laws to mentally and religiously and all this other stuff, unite them. He started by abolishing aristocratic inheritance, kind of like when he didn't put people in charge that were his family, he put people in charge that knew what they were doing. So he abolished that inheritance belief. He abolished women being sold or kidnapped. You sold or kidnapped a woman, it was plausible you would die. He would have you killed. Owning slaves, completely illegal. Again, it could spell out your death. And so was stealing livestock. You did any of the things that were normal for a nomadic raiding tribe. And um, as it says in Alice in Wonderland, off with your head. Weren't these known as the Yasa laws or something? I didn't, my, my source, sources didn't specify the title of the laws, but hey, I wouldn't be surprised. But he also had a writing system created for the Mongolian Empire. Hmm. He even began taking census of his citizens. We had a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And he offered diplomatic immunity to ambassadors. Well, given the one I talked about where his ambassadors got one of them got beheaded. Yeah, I can imagine that. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm going to get into that, but I'm not going to go into as much detail as you did. Hmm. Harm. And after he conquered the entirety of the Mongolian tribes, he moved on to China. And his first campaign outside of Mongolia was against the Shisha. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I apologize. I do not know how to pronounce Chinese names properly. Uh, and it's kingdom located in the northwest of China. In 1209, they had raided and conquered 
the majority of the kingdom and actually made it to the capital known as Yinchuan. And they ended up, of course, raiding and destroying. And the ruler of the kingdom actually surrendered and began to give Genghis Khan tribute. After that, they moved on to the Jin dynasty. <laughs> and they began, once again, tactic sweep across the country, destroy everything in sight. And they really destroyed everything in this one because they destroyed the whole countryside where farmland was and stuff. And so they destroyed the farms and the fields and many people started to flock to the cities because what else do you do when you're a farmer and you've got nowhere to go? Your home's been destroyed, your farming and livestock is gone you go to the city to look for work. Well, do you know what else this did, Melissa? No, do tell. Food shortages. Mm. A lot of it. Do you know how the Jin Empire tried to quote, end quote, fix that problem? Eating its citizens? No. Killing the citizens, you were close. I mean, it's one or the other. They, they killed majority of their uh, peasants. Of course, the peasants which, don't matter whatsoever. Oh, of course, you know, let's just decimate the population. <laughs> so it decimated the population and in 1214, the Jin ruler ended up surrendering and also began to pay tribute. And five years later, not really sure what happened in between, but in 1219, the Khwarezm, Quarism Empire was the next to be seen as the enemy to conquer. Must destroy. By the way, if you're wondering who they are, they're a Muslim empire that was located in today's Iran kind of area. Iran, Uzbekistan. I don't remember you saying that. You didn't, did you? Not specifically. I talked about the empire. Yeah, that's what I thought, but I didn't hear you like say where they were kind of located. So the Sultan had set up a trade treaty with Genghis Khan and it became a questionable one as the first set of traders, the, the goods had been stolen and the traders were killed en route. And then to in a way add insult to injury as the saying goes, the Sultan had some of Genghis Khan's ambassadors killed, murdered. You, you talked about that just a little bit. Even though Khan's army was smaller, they were much more destructive. Just, just like they did to the Jin Empire, just sweeping through and destroying everything. Everything in their path. Destroy, die, that kind of thing. And they destroyed several cities. But in this case, you know what they did? They saved the workers. They saved the people that actually had a skill set. And then the non-skilled workers they used as human shields in the next, next battle. And they also killed anyone who resisted them, basically soldiers, and the aristocrats off with their heads. <laughs> well, he did do away with the aristocracy anyway. So why would you want to put aristocrats back in place? Well, he was also annoyed by the Sultan. So, I mean, 
anyone who supported the Sultan, which was of course the majority of the aristocrats were in his way in a sense and get out of the way, I'm going to destroy you. That's what that sounded like. Well, next we're gonna talk about family life under Khan. Um, I, unfortunately, I couldn't find a whole lot about his family. Mind you, he had a lot. As I think everyone pretty much knows, the Khan had a lot of children. So he obviously, we know he had his first wife, uh, Brote, and, or Borte, sorry. And the thing is, in terms of Mongolian culture at the time, the first wife was your legal wife. And any children born to the first wife were the ones that were going to inherit anyone else is just your children but it's believed that he had a variety of different wives and i'll get into that in a second but some say he also had possibly up to 500 concubines which that's just a lot yeah quite quite mm, that's a harem oh it's bigger than a harem that's a city full of people but the first heirs born to Khan from Borte would be uh, Jochi, Chagatai, Ogodi, and Tului. Now, Jochi was a bit of an uncertain one. He was the first son born to Borte, but she also gave birth to him nine months, supposedly, exactly after she'd been kidnapped. So it's not certain if the firstborn son was Khan's, but he didn't care. He raised him as his own anyway. Now, these four would inherit the empire after Khan's death. But as we said, many, many, many more were sired by his other wives and concubines. But I couldn't find a whole lot about his family life. Like I, I, He would travel around and meet up, I guess he would visit his wives frequently and his children and could be at a different camp every night, which of course didn't sit very well with his security. But it's, there's not a whole lot about how he was as a father or anything like that. But I was able to find a, an article that talked more about what life was like for women during the reign of Khan, which was quite different than a lot of Western and Eastern cultures at that time. This was actually pretty interesting. And it, it, it's more of a nomadic version, but I think it gives you a kind of an idea of what women meant to the Mongolian empire. So according to the article, Mongolians highly respected women or at least the women born of Mongolian descent. And they would often even serve as leaders within their communities. And it's believed that Mongol men were even best off marrying older women because they believe that she would not only bring wisdom, but experience to the relationship in terms of financial responsibility and things like that as well. And men also would listen to their wives, which was not exactly a common thing throughout most of the world in particularly medieval times and those who didn't listen to their wives were often seen as unmanly and even immature 
because women were uh, at least Mongolian descent were typically seen as equal. And they also participated alongside the men too. They fought with them in battles. They raised horses, participated in archery competitions and much more. Women in, within the empire were also expected to be very strong, hardworking and fierce, just like the men. And they were also in charge of the households and able to purchase things without the need of their husbands to tell them what they can or cannot purchase. And women were also specifically in charge of the family cards. And this is more in reference to the nomadic families. This seems a little strange maybe, but the cards themselves would be carrying all of the family's possessions and supplies. If you're familiar with the Oregon Trail and the rides out west in the 1800s and that the covered cat, uh, wagons, the men drove the covered wagons, the women and the children would be sitting inside the wagons as sort of slight defense against any raid party or anything like that. But the men weren't supposed to be taking the wagons because it was supposed to be the man's job to defend the family. But in this case, the men and women both defended the family. But for the carts, it was specifically for the women to defend the family's possessions. Additionally, women were also charged of setting up the tents and nomadic structures, as well as also in charge of the livestock and herding, and of course, the raising of the kids and cooking and things like that. They were generally seen as equal and needed to also be helpful with any of the day-to-day -day tasks. Daughters were also equally as valuable as sons, sometimes even maybe a little more so, depending on who your father was. In fact, Khan was actually known to spout a metaphor at his daughter's weddings. Apparently, he had far more many daughters than he had sons, and he would say something to the effect that men and women were meant to exist as an equal and are part of the whole. One cannot live without the other. You cannot function without both. Now, of course, most of this applied, as I mentioned, to Mongolian women, not usually applied to all women. Those who were of other religions from other parts of the world or of conquered territories were not always treated the same, unfortunately. But if you want to look more into a, a female who was very highly regarded in Mongolian society, the granddaughter of Genghis Khan, Kutalun, which uh, we've got it on the list. She'll come up at some point. Absolutely fascinating. The look into her life. She's very, very cool. And then we're going to round out this family life with some information about descendants of Khan. So interesting enough, and I didn't have the chance to really look into it, but in my research of about descendants of Khan, his last known ruling descendant. Are you ready for this, Lauren? Maybe. Maybe, maybe not. So Khan died in around 1227, and then his kids took over. The last known ruling descendant that was known to be directly related to Khan was deposed in only 1920. And this person would be? I didn't have the time to look it up. So look it up now. I can't. My computer won't let me. Fine, fine, fine. I'll do it. But, but yeah, around 700 years after his death, his family is still, was still ruling 
uh, at least a portion of the Mongol Empire up in that time. Now, that was a direct ruling descendant, not necessarily those who are directly related in terms of genetics. According to Discover Magazine, a 2003 genetic study found that a substantial number of men throughout the world were directly related to Genghis Khan via the Y chromosome and a certain haplop group that comes from that particular Y chromosome. And according to the study, one out of every 200 men are likely to be a descendant of Khan. Given he had about 500 wives and who knows how many children, that's a lot. So the study reports that approximately 10% of the men in the current area known as Mongolia and approximately half a percent of those outside could be related. It doesn't sound like a lot, but when you do the math of how many people who are currently on the planet, this potentially could add up to around 16 million men directly related to Khan. So I hope I'm not interrupting, but I found your answer. Well, go ahead. Muhammad Alim Khan, mm -hmm. uh, last ruling descendant of Genghis Khan, and he was emir of the Mangit dynasty and specifically became the crown prince of Bukhara in, well, I mean, Bukhara during his reign was, I mean, it's right next to the Russian empire. It was also a protectorate of the Russian empire. So anything going on in Russia was going on in Bukhara too. And in 1920, he was removed from the throne via the red army. And he actually fled to Afghanistan and died there 24 years later. And by the way, the Emirate of Bukhara is now Uzbekistan. Hmm. Well, thanks for sharing. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm all for extra information. So, yep. I can send you the picture if you want, and you can, I'll send you the link to this, this one, and it'll be a part of the sources so that you can, if you want, you can use this picture for anything if you want to. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Um, so let me finish up with the study real quick, and then you can talk about your end or the end of the con, whichever you prefer to call it. <laughs> All of the above. Right. So according to the study, and this is a quote, we have identified a Y chromosomal lineage with several unusual features. It was found in 16 populations throughout a large region of, area, uh, of Asia, stretching from the Pacific to the Caspian Sea, and was present at a high frequency. Around 8% of the men in this region carry it, thus makes up to half a percent of the world total. The pattern of variation within the lineage suggests that it originated in Mongolia approximately 1,000 years ago. Such a rapid spread cannot have occurred by chance. It must have been a result of selection. This, the lineage is carried by likely male line descendants of Genghis Khan, and we therefore propose that it has a spread by a novel form of social selection resulting from their behavior. So again, potentially up to 16 million men on the earth as of 2003 are likely to be a descendant of the great Khan. 
quite a con. <laughs> so on August 18th, 1227, Genghis Khan died. Unknown why, zero clues. He just died. Well, wasn't there the rumor that he died during sex or a nosebleed or something? Didn't read that. I just read that he just died. That's something I always heard, but I don't know if that was true. Rumors are rumors, my friend. So, well, during his early life, he was more laid back and easygoing and willing to listen to the opinions and thoughts of others. He was still considered ruthless, but fair to those who were loyalty to him. Loyalty to him. Loyal to him. Loyalty was an important factor for Genghis Khan. When he began his expansion of his empire into China, he changed tactics. He became more ruthless and cared less. He used fear and terror among people in, in cities in order to conquer them. And if they resisted, the Mongols would be willing to slaughter the entire population. He didn't always. He did what was tactically better for him. And that includes, you know, if, if a city was, or the population of a city or a town, even though they surrendered, if he thought it was tactically advantageous for him, he would destroy them. And he's remembered for these military feats. Like we said, he defeated the Jin, he defeated the Shisha, the Khwarezm. He defeated these large tribes of, and empires of people with what was a small one in comparison. And he, having united these nomadic infighting Mongolian tribes, that was a really important factor in the memory that we have of him, his life after death, kind of. I just was looking up um, how did Khan die, and I just found something really interesting. I think you'd be fascinated to hear. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, you know the Pony Express. Yes. <laughs> um, Khan was, Khan actually created something similar to that but uh, obviously on a much bigger scale, was actually known to have one of the first international post systems created, but much like the Pony Express, to where it, as the, router, the riders would ride every few miles, stop and have a fresh mount, they said they could travel as far as 200 miles a day by horseback just for the mail. Oh, it also says that it was used to help protect foreign dignitaries and merchants and in later years, the service is used by people like Marco Polo and John of Plano Carpini. Well, who would have thought? But aside from that, we got that information. Thank you for, for finding that. Uh, along with making all these military feats, these new rules, abolishing the aristocratic inheritance, he did also choose which of his children would succeed him. Which, by the way, one of his children succeeded him despite the abolishment of aristocratic inheritance. <laughs> Unfortunately, his sons were not that great. No, I, I, I didn't read on into the son and his feats because I was like, mm, this isn't. This is about Khan, not Khan's son. But he did choose one of his sons. 
and his son was Ogadai. He also ensured that Ogadai would be followed without contest from any of Genghis's other children. Don't know if that really worked, but uh, he he's the one that began the consolidation of what would later become the Mongolian the Mongol Empire. It wasn't the Mongol Empire when he died, but and by the way, this Mongol Empire, it was the greatest empire during the medieval era. Well, of course. Mm-hmm. Just little tidbit, because when we think when we think back, I don't think Mongol Empire. I think into Europe, but very, very different. Well, I think when we think of empires in the medieval time, I think we tend to think more of Ottoman Empire. That's true too. But it was it was actually the Mongol. I've got I've got another thought I need to look up. But yep, that's that's the end of the great Genghis Khan. I just feel stupid. I'm like, duh, that's a that of course that's the answer. I'm just being stupid. Okay, so I was like, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I was like, what is the biggest empire known in history? Yeah, the British Empire didn't even jump into my head. But obviously, that's the biggest one in history. But the Mongol Empire is second on that list. Yeah. And the Roman Empire is far below that. (laughs) So according to Wikipedia, British Empire, in terms of size, had 35.5 million kilometers squared. The Mongol Empire had 24 million kilometers squared. Roman Empire had 5 million kilometers squared. That's a pretty big feat in that era. Yeah. And then the Macedonian Empire, so the uh, Alexander the Great had 5.2. The Ottoman Empire had 5.2. So the two largest, the three largest are the British, the Mongol, and the Russian empires, the, the largest in history. Hmm. top that off I don't think I can (laughs) but yeah I got anything else to add Melissa other than that because that's the end of the con for me nope no I just want to watch Star Trek then well let's end this so that you can go and watch some Star Trek always no that's okay (laughs) I'm making a joke (laughs) But we can. And this, yes. I think we I think we should since I don't have any more information and neither do you. Yeah, I'm 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 uh, I think we've we were just covering very distinctive specific things about con. We could probably go on for quite a longer time about it, but we don't want to make it too too long. Well, I mean, I could probably find a ton more detail about his death and everything else. Well, you can't actually because he doesn't no one knows where he's buried. And oh, yeah, it's an unmarked grave, yeah. Right, so there's no one knows specifically how he died. It's just all rumors, whether he fell off a horse or had malaria or got a nosebleed or died during sex. No one knows. No one knows where he's buried. In fact, technically, no one even knows what he looks like because during his entire reign, he refused to have his portrait made for any reason whatsoever. No coins, no portraits, no tapestries, nothing. Anything yep. you see of Khan was created post posthumously. Mm, yep, yep. Not even a death mask. 
Yep, I know. But, all right. That'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. We hope to see you next week as we trek through history to explain it all. Bye.